Now listening to Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games podcast. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 147. I'm Matt Hackett. I'm Jeff Blair. We have interesting topics this time. It's going to be another Jeff show. Are you ready for all Jeff all the time? I'm not ready for that. (laughs) Because it's uh, stuff that you've got, stuff that you've been up to, optimization, all that good things, you know? Yeah, I have a whole bunch of, I guess, things to talk about today. You do? I hope Um, you're chatty. How much coffee have you had? I haven't had any coffee. What's your coffee level? Okay, that's good. (laughs) I I feel much safer now. Mio. (laughs) <laughs> oh wait that's dangerous too that's full of caffeine anyways we're going to talk uh about the steam link controller i may have mentioned that before but i want to recap it again yep um i made some pretty good headway on optimizing the tile map rendering in awl2 yeah um we did some optimization on the fire rendering very important and uh we have a couple news items maybe to talk about um iconography Icono, iconography. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what? Where did that one uh, come from? Twitter changed their stars to hearts. Oh, I see. And I thought that, yeah, in and of itself, it's not a super interesting topic, but um, it makes me think about some of the stuff we've talked about lately uh, with regards to just how icons can represent stuff and like the shape uh, that they message and stuff like that. The theme and the skin, it can matter a great deal. Especially yeah, when you look at uh, like an abstract shape, you know, like uh, a star is very pointy and might actually look like uh, dangerous in the context of a game, you know, but a heart, while it has one point, it, it has mostly soft curves and it looks comforting and uh, it looks like something that would restore your health. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, I should pick that up. That's interesting. Yeah, I noticed that on TweetDeck, but I, I, I don't know. I thought that might have been a TweetDeck only thing. That's one of the things about the web is um, usually when you update your software, like your locally installed software, you at least have a heads up for it. You know, you know when it's coming. It's only Chrome, I guess, that kind of updates in the background. And then, but the, even then, there's like a restart, and there's like a moment when you're, you know, you see the update, right? But on the web, a lot of times, it's just like it sneaks in. You're like, I'm just gonna go to a sauna. Woo! What? It's <laughs> well, all why pink it, now. It's pink. What happened? <laughs> yeah, it can be very jarring on the web. It can. Um, so, anyways, the the catalyst for this was that Twitter changed their favorite to a like. And they also changed the uh, the icon from a star to a heart. And yeah, I was uh, thinking about it because you and I have had a lot of conversations about, you know, things that are spiky. Yes. Um, I think that, what was the the most recent one? We had something that was really round. Oh, oh. The, the curses. Yeah, yeah. We had these curses yeah. that were supposed to be like dangerous and they were these big round orbs with scary faces, admittedly, and they were like red and like translucent. They looked, like if you if you looked at them on the screen, they looked... Um, I would say evil. Yeah. Uh, but in the context of everything else going on in the screen, like these round things just didn't feel threatening enough. Yeah. Round seems good. You know, uh, what was that article? I think I said that to you not that long ago, right? There was one that was talking about basically like the shape of things and why they matter, like breaking games down into their simplest form, you know? Yeah. I'll put a link to that and we'll probably talk about that some more in the future. That's some good stuff. It's along yeah. these same lines though where it's like the shape really does matter. The curses too, they had this animation where like the faces were kind of rotating almost like a severed head spinning in place mm-hmm. and there was a couple of frames where you couldn't really even see the face at all. So the face looks scary and threatening but with a couple of frames where it's almost entirely gone or irrecognizable based on the perspective, it only looked like a hazard maybe half the time. You know, right. and what we both found is that we were so it was kind of the soft limit where the curses would come from the sides of the screen and you know chase Raga, right? And a lot of times you just get hit because you weren't 
really paying attention to them. They were so slight. Right. Yeah, and they I also had, they had like the, the, the ghost view, like from the first game where, you know, it didn't have the solid outlines and the black borders. It was just kind of like translucent. You could see through it. And that made it almost feel like background. Well, I think that a lot of that has to do with conditioning. You know, we had this basically visual rule that anything yeah. that wasn't in the same plane as you uh, in AWL1 was kind of got this like composite operation lightning effect on it. And so I think that after, you know, many, many hours of playing AWL1, my brain was just trained to not see those things because they didn't matter, you know? Right. There's a lot of going, a lot of stuff going on in those screens sometimes. Uh, actually, I think that's kind of a mistake, you know, having those things at all. I think that if uh, I were to go back and do that again, I might opt for something where, like, you just can't see them at all. Hmm. Because your brain trains itself not to see them anyway. Yeah. And they're basically just, outside of, like, very limited situations, they're cluttering information. They are, yeah. And especially in the sequel, we otherwise have such good, concise rules for what is a game object where are the outlines of things you know that's been important to us from the beginning if you uh, look at just the value of the pixels so let's let's say you desaturate everything and you don't see any you know color to it right we still have done a pretty good job of like there will be a solid border around both the environment and the game objects that matter you know and we broke those rules with that approach to the curses and it failed spectacularly possibly because of the contrast between the rest of the game which was done in a you know, good, meaningful way, and then the curses, which were like, I don't know, let's try this. <laughs> See if yeah. that works. And it didn't. And it did. Yeah. Uh, I think it's interesting just to, you know, keep that stuff in mind, like consistency is important. Yeah. <clears throat> and also, uh, you know, the th- shapes of things that you choose, you know, especially when you've got a lot going on, your eyes kind of just, you know, you see shapes, but maybe not details when right. you're playing an action game, perhaps. Yeah, I like this analogy, uh, I think it was in this article, which was basically like, you know, if I'm going to throw something at you, if I throw you a ball, right, something round, you're probably going to, okay, I'm going to catch it, right? But if I threw something spiky at you, <laughs> like a, you know, sea urchin, <laughs> or like a, <laughs> like a porcupine or something, you'd be like, no, Matt, no, <laughs> don't throw that at me. You know, it's like, you look at these yeah. abstract shapes and you think that they don't matter, but they really do. Like, they have meaning to people. Right. And I don't know if that's the... Uh you know, the thinking behind Twitter's change. I think that it's more along the lines of like, they wanted the engagement to be different. Like I like this rather than this is my favorite thing ever. Right. That's how I've been tweeting favorite or uh, treating, <laughs> treating favorites for a long time. For a while there, like when I first started um, using Twitter, I was using it as, as intended, I guess, like as favorites. So I had like a small curated list of tweets that I thought were really excellent, you know? But over time, I was like, you know, I don't really use that. And I see a value in just being able to favorite something instead of having to... Like, somebody would respond and I want them to feel like they've been heard, you know? But I don't have anything to say. I'd be like, yep. (laughs) You know, like, I don't know. And a lot of times, I I just don't want to have to think about coming up with something else to say. So, you just favorite it, you know? You're like, yes, we are engaged here and (laughs) we're moving on. So I have like thousands and thousands of favorites because I was using it as mostly just like a the equivalent of a Facebook thumbs up. Right, yeah. Like, I think it's like, the way I've been using it too. It's kind of just like yeah. a Roger, gotcha. We're on <laughs> the same page. It's like a nod. Yes, sir. Yeah. Nod, Salute. Yeah. yeah. It's like a, yeah. And you think this stuff doesn't matter, but I'll tell you, like a lot of the prolific game developers out there, especially indie developers, they don't just have Twitter accounts. They use them, you know? Like it's it matters. It's important. 
You got to have that presence, especially if you're trying to sell products to people, you know, and increase your mind share and that kind of stuff. Like, you know, you need to be on Twitter. Yeah. I, uh, so Twitter came out with polls recently, Ooh, which I think is pretty interesting. Have you have Nazinos? No. Oh, wow. Yeah. <clears throat> it's like, uh, you can do a very simple poll. Uh, it doesn't show up in TweetDeck. That's probably why you haven't seen it. Cause TweetDeck oh. as a client kind of lags behind. Yeah. Uh, like the twitter.com website. Interesting. So uh, if you use the Twitter.com website, you can create and vote in polls. I, I made a poll this morning. Did you? You're the one who got me into TweetDeck. Yes. You're why I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, if uh, you only spend your time in TweetDeck and you don't venture out into you know the rest of the world, then maybe. I do. I live in TweetDeck. I never leave Google Chrome. <laughs> My two tabs open. Let's see. Which flavor of RPG do you prefer? Action RPG or tactical RPG? Mm, that's tough isn't it yeah i gotta i gotta go with action i guess mm. i went with action we will put a link to this uh poll <laughs> in the show notes so let your let your voice be heard opinion away <laughs> this is a very important poll too many game design decisions are riding <laughs> on the results of this poll based on this we will <laughs> turn our next game into <laughs> whatever you decide we will definitely pivot as we are as we are known to do <laughs> Anyways, yeah. So that's all the Twitter news. Nice. Um, oh, there's other news too. Activision buys King for six billion. Yeah, that's with kind a of B. Interesting. That's crazy because you know Minecraft sold is it two and a half. And you look uh, at King yeah. and like you know they they actually have a portfolio of games right like that's one of the things Mojang had. Mojang had Minecraft and then Mojang had like scrolls. There's other there's other things. Wait, right. no, <laughs> they just you know. King has a. Uh, they have like franchises, you know. They have like the whole Candy Saga Crush, yes, Bubble Witch thing. The wife plays the Farm Match Three game a lot. By King, yes, mm. yeah. And she's played Candy Crush Saga, but it's. I think that was more of like she likes to keep her finger on the pulse of uh, the freemium and the mobile market because that's where uh, her career has been for a while now. That makes sense. You gotta know the competition, right? Yeah. Yep, got to get your head up out of the sand once in a while. That's interesting. That's a, that's a lot, a lot of money. But, you know, apparently King is killing it on mobile. Wow, that is a ton of money. Like, that's, you I, you can't fathom that kind of money, really, you know? It's interesting because I don't know if you would call Blizzard, like, the most dominant PC developer. Mm. But they're up there. Yeah, they're up there for sure. They make super high quality, super engaged games. Obviously, like, I'm a huge Blizzard fan. We you talk are. about them and their games all the time. But... <laughs> King is maybe the equivalent on mobile. Hmm, interesting. And so now Activision owns Blizzard and King. Oof. So they have a really strong foothold on PC, uh, and they have a really strong foothold on mobile now, too. And then, you know, Activision itself, obviously, before they bought Blizzard and King, had a pretty strong uh, PC offering Yeah, as well. I wonder how Hearthstone's doing on mobile. I know it's doing great on desktop, but I wonder if that translates well. Like, I knew it was on iPad, and that seems like a really great place for it to be. But then I saw that it's actually on, you know, legit mobile, small mobile, like Android phones and iPhones and whatnot. It's really good, actually. It's it's really good on tablets, and it's really good on, on the phone, too, actually. they nice. uh, The interface is even different, right? On the very small screen, it has a completely separate... I wouldn't say separate, but the, the UI is much different. It's kind of the same, like you, all of the patterns are the same and like the graphics look the same, but they like make use of the real estate in different ways. 
Nice. Um, especially with a game like Hearthstone, there's a lot of information, right? There's like your yeah. board with all of your things on it, the opponent's board with all their things on it. You've got you know, your deck, your hand, your opponent's hand. So nice. All kinds of stuff. Anyways, uh, Activision is becoming kind of a behemoth. Yeah. So it's uh, a little bit like Google. They own YouTube. You know, you forget about that sometimes, but like, geez, like just look at what amount of the internet that Google just dominates. <laughs> Right. Well, search and YouTube are both, you know, an email. <laughs> I saw that like the uh, the number one competitor to at one point in time to Google the search was YouTube search. <laughs> I was like, geez, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just too much. <laughs> too much. Yeah. At least there's Twitch, which is like you know, competing. At least it's like yeah. it's, you can tell that they're at least scaring YouTube a little bit because YouTube is reacting by creating a lot of similar features, right? With like gaming.youtube.com. And now they have, uh, actually just last night I was watching laser time show. They did a, uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but they, they were watching star Wars and commentating on it at the same so time. So like mystery science theater. 3000. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Mystery laser time theater. <laughs> laser mystery theater. Yeah. It was a little weird cause I didn't have star Wars to play along with them, but, uh, you know, it was fun. Like Brett was there. And it was good. <laughs> but it was on, I was interested to see that. It was actually on YouTube because uh, I would have thought stream Twitch. But uh, it was on YouTube and it was just as good as Twitch, I have to say. It was like high quality. The chat was going strong. It told you how many viewers there are. Like all the same stuff as Twitch, but wrapped up in that nice familiar YouTube interface, you know? Hmm. Pretty would good. You, would you totally ditch Twitch to go like ditch consolidate Twitch. everything on YouTube? <laughs> You know, that is tempting. Uh, there was that time a little while ago where we were experimenting with that a little bit. And uh, let's see, I actually put, I played some Splunky on there. And what I noticed is that I think it's just because of the pre-established audience. Um, we didn't really get any viewers. There was like one or two real time in about an hour on uh, YouTube gaming. But w- when I went over to Twitch instead, there was like instantly 10, maybe as many as 20 people hanging out. You know, and I think that would be because we've got a couple hundred Twitch followers. Um, maybe some of them will even get an email when right. we go live. And I don't think YouTube probably has those kinds of features yet. Plus, like, the YouTube audience is not going to be as reactive. You know, like, a strong Twitch viewer will know to react and, like, be available and be able to jump on a stream. Whereas, like, the YouTube audience, they're, like, they're used to being, like, yeah, I'll watch it when I feel like it. Maybe never. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. But it's, it was interesting because like we actually have about double the audience on YouTube as we do on Twitch. But it's a very different audience, right? It is, yeah. That's fascinating stuff. Yeah, and I mean, even if Twitch competes, like they are another giant, ridiculous conglomerate being owned by Amazon now, right? Yeah, that's true. I forgot <laughs> about that. They're not really like a scrappy startup anymore. No, no. That's, that ship has sailed. <laughs> I mean, so they might be like culturally... Culturally, they do feel that way very much. Yeah. You have no idea what you're talking about? No. No. My tiger hat is strong today. (laughs) Excuse me. Yeah. Um, So, the next thing I wanted to mention was the Steam Lincoln controller. Ooh. And those are two products. It sounds like one, the way you're saying it. Those are two things, right? Those are two things, yeah. There's There's the Steam Steam controller. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Go ahead, Matt. (laughs) <laughs> why don't you talk about the steam link controller i'll talk about the products that you bought and have spent time with and i have not at all so what, okay what steam controller no you, you tell me <laughs> okay all right no i you know i played the steam controller here i go it was at <laughs> uh the gdc last year yeah it was yeah we both played it we played uh towerfall 
We did play Tower And player. instead of a, you know, D-pad or analog stick on for your left thumb, and then for your right thumb having usually face buttons, four face buttons is pretty typical, it was two touchpads. And it's weird. It feels Sucks. like your thumbs don't know where to go. What do it's I do with my thumbs? Really weird. I think, so, I don't like them at all, the touchpads. <laughs> and I think that, uh, specifically, it's two things. One is that they're very large. And so, like, small movements of your thumb don't make as big of a difference, right? Because it's basically like an analog stick. Interesting. You know, with, like, the zero being, or the middle being zero, and then the extents being, you know, a normal of one. Yeah. Or whatever. And uh, it feels like I have to move my thumb really far across the pad in order to get it to register any kind of meaningful movement. That's not um, good. And I have big hands. So, I mean, this is like, the controller's big. Uh, mm. Melissa picked it up and like, she really likes the, you know, le- latest gen Xbox controller. Nice. But the Steam controller is just, it's much bigger. Hmm. Um, also, you know, they departed from like the Xbox style a little bit. Yeah. So that where the face buttons would be in a normal controller, that's where the touchpad is. And then the face buttons are kind of more in like the middle of the gamepad, like where the analog would be on say an Xbox controller. So it does have face buttons. It does. Yeah. Okay. So what it's replaced is basically the left and right analogs with the touchpads. Yes. Right. Right. So if you were looking at say like a PS controller where it's like um there's a d-pad on the left and the face buttons on the right and then kind of like in the lower middle on each side you have the analogs yep uh it's almost reversed they have the two analog pads up in the big face sections and then the d-pad and the buttons kind of like more pushed in towards the middle bottom of the controller and how do you feel about it don't like it (laughs) (laughs) the face buttons are really close together and uh and small and I don't like that. Hmm. Do you like anything about it? Or is it just a big a big no from you? I think with the controller, it's a big no. Wow. Don't like it. Um, one thing I do like, though, is that they have said that they want it to be, like, modular and moddable. And so I'm hoping that what they mean by that is, like, there will be a point in time where, like, I could purchase an analog stick and put it in the slot where the stupid touchpads are now. Mm. That's That doesn't sound great to me. Because it's always going to be worse than like just a direct analog, right? I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily true. Mm. I mean, why would it have to be? I mean, from my experience in general, the more moving parts, just the crappier something is, you know, and the analog already, by definition, has a bunch of moving parts. And like, I remember that Xbox controller, one of their more recent ones, which like their D-pad had this really clumsy thing where you could like push it down and twist it to toggle it from like classic octagonal or orthogonal d-pad to just this true 360 kind of more like analog feel mm-hmm. and like i don't know that's just that's gonna break you know i've had enough controllers in my life where i, I can see the parts that are gonna fail <laughs> over right. time i think that's a little i may agree with you there but it's i think it's a little different too because that's like a part that has much more compl- complication because it has to fill two functions yeah whereas if you have like a like a modular controller you know, theoretically, it would just be like there would be a slot you could drop in, you know, a piece of input controller. Yeah. I mean, it, it could be crap as well, but... Um, I would be skeptical, but, you know, obviously I could be I could be wrong for once, right? Mm-hmm. Be wrong for the first time. <laughs> first time ever. Never <laughs> happened. 
Yes. Uh, so, anyways, the controller sucks, um, but the Steam Link <laughs> is actually pretty good. So, the Steam Link is a little uh, device that is basically just like a little Wi-Fi enabled streaming box, and it's pr- it's pretty thin. You know, it's very small. Uh, it looks really elegant, and basically, what it does is it hooks up to your Wi-Fi network. And I don't know if you're familiar with like the Steam streaming feature. So like what you can do is like uh I have this big beefy PC with all my games on it. Yep. And I can be on my Mac laptop, which is much less powerful, and I have Steam installed on both, and I could say stream Spelunky, which only runs on Windows, from my Windows machine on Steam to my Mac. Wow. Um so Steam Link lets you do that exact same thing except for on a TV. So like you can stream your Steam games running on your big beefy tower PC to your TV. Um, and it's pretty good. Uh, there's a little bit of lag sometimes. I mean, it probably depends on your network. You know, yeah. I'm running it over, both of them are on Wi-Fi. So my PC is on Wi-Fi and the Steam Link is on Wi-Fi. And there was a little bit of lag. I would say it's not unplayable. But there's definitely times when I'm playing a game like Spelunky or something that, you know, a little, like a, a half frame of misstep could basically be death. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's especially true in Spelunky. Right. I saw uh, that stream feature at one point because I had some games installed on my, like my work desktop, but then not like the family room media PC. Mm-hmm. And I was like, like the, the button goes from play or install to stream if it detects it on Steam on another computer. And right. so I tried it, and I think it was just my network because it was like laughably bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like very stuttery and just like clearly nowhere near where it would need to be for me to actually play a game. Oh, wow. But I think that, you know, that's going to, you know, your mileage may vary, right? Yeah, your mileage definitely vary. I played, and um, I actually, I could play Spelunky pretty well. Uh, I would say that maybe every couple of minutes, or maybe every five minutes, there would be like, uh, you know, maybe like a half second of lag mm. that would, uh, most time it wouldn't kill me because, you know, it would just happen so infrequently, but you could see where that would, that could ruin your experience. If you had a really great game, like let's say you got to the city of gold and you're like, well, you're well on your way to beating it the hard way. Would you be sweating it because you were streaming it? Oh yeah. <laughs> That's like a good test, right? Yeah. It's, um, you know, your real world ideal scenario. For a lot of other games, though, it's amazing. Like, I haven't played, you know, action games. I played, um, what was it, Rocket League. Uh, oh, how is that? It's pretty fun, actually. It's it's really simple. It's really fun. It's basically, uh, you know, it's basically what it looks like, right? You're just driving this car around an arena trying to hit a ball into a goal. Sounds very and, uh, simple. I like simple these days. And it's just fun. Like, the controls feel good. I played that uh, over the Steam Link with the Steam Controller, even, and it actually felt pretty fun. Go Valve. And I think because, you know, the controls are simplistic, you know, with Spelunky or any, and a lot of other games, you know, it's like, okay, you're roping, you're bombing, you're jumping, you're whipping, you're holding down the run button, you're moving eight directions or whatever, four directions with the stick. And there's a lot of controls, whereas with uh, Rocket League, it was more like you're steering and you're boosting and you're jumping. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there was a little bit of lag spurts like that, but, like, the, you know, it wasn't, like, a game killer. Right. Um, I could see it being really, really good for stuff like, you know, like a game like Darkest Dungeon, maybe. Yeah. Where, you know, turn-based stuff, uh, Invisible Ink, it would be a lot of fun for those kinds of games. Shining Force? 
Shining Force, which yeah. is on Steam now. Crazy. I think I have it on Steam. I don't know if it supports GamePad though. I hope it does. It doesn't support. That's weird. So the only problem with with the GamePad scenario is that uh, I'm going to need to get like a wireless keyboard and mouse to play like games like Darkest Dungeon or something on the Steam Link because some of the games just don't have GamePad support. Interesting. Hmm. And I love it. GamePad games. Huh? GamePad's the best. GamePad is the best the best especially when you're talking about a tv right which is where the, the steam link is going to be so it sounds like from you that is a thumbs down for controller and a thumbs up for steam link i think it's a thumb yeah thumbs up for steam link but it's highly dependent on your network and, right. and the kind of games that you're playing so if the game that you're playing is very tolerant of lag like you're basically golden uh and if the game that you're playing is not tolerant to lag then you got to be on like a pretty good no lag kind of network. The other big downside, though, is that it takes over your host PC. So, like, when I'm playing Rocket League or something on my Steam Link, my PC is playing Rocket League. Oh, that makes sense. And so, it's not like if Melissa wanted to play a game on the Steam Link and I wanted to be doing work, that doesn't work. Yeah. Right? Like, if I wanted to use my PC, no one else can use the Steam Link and vice versa. Right. So, that's, you know... That's not great, but what are you going to do? Um, I'm actually more interested now in getting a Steam box or the Steam PC at some point, Steam OS, because you know it would kind of kill the lag uh, question, probably, and it would also uh, make it its own kind of you know autonomous thing that wouldn't necessarily take up my PC if someone were using it. Do they have any dates for that yet? I don't know. I think there's some companies that have made Steam boxes so far, but I don't really know. Interesting. Anyways, yeah, uh, that's just my thoughts on the Steam stuff. Nice. I think it's pretty cool, but uh, it's early, so I think that there's probably some iteration that has to happen there, especially on the controller. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to uh, know what Steam is up to and all that because they are uh, where our money comes from. <laughs> yeah, the big thing for me was that I wanted to see how the controller worked with AWL, and uh, <laughs> it's kind of weird. I feel like there were some bugs with it. Although was I don't know. Largely if, playable? It was pretty playable, yeah. Nice. There was just like, I loaded up the game one time and the controls wouldn't respond well and then I loaded it up again and it was fine. And it may have been in between updating this firmware on the controller, but I don't remember. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. But like, it didn't catch on fire and it didn't <laughs> kill you constantly. So that, that's a good thing. Yes. <laughs> so it works with our game on Steam. <laughs> yes. Good to know. Yes. Yeah, I did play it over the Steam Link and it was it was pretty good. Excellent. You it should. still had that kind of that same thing where, like, you know, every couple of minutes I would get this little bit of lag, just like a half second stutter, but it's enough to be noticeable. Yeah. Um, it also really makes it obvious how our aspect ratio isn't standard, like sixteen by nine. Ugh, I know, it kills me. When I'm like looking at it on the big TV and there's these huge black bars on the side. That's one of the things I really like about a Wizard's Lizard Two. Oh yeah. We can make those changes. We can make it HD. It looks legit. Legit. It's like a legit. real game. Yeah. And it's highly optimized. That's true. Which is a great segue. Woo! Segue accomplished. <laughs> Smooth <laughs> as silk. <laughs> Into our next section. Yes. We're going to be talking about optimization. All right. All right. Everyone's favorite. Everyone's favorite topic, yes. That's I'll my, take one a nap. of my favorites. Let me know when you're done. <laughs> <laughs> so you went through the tile map rendering because it was like the most expensive thing, right? Yeah. So, you know... Every once in a while, I uh, profile the game in Chrome and just kind of 
make sure I at least know where the bottlenecks are. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's the first step. The more you know, et cetera. I picture you like a sleuth. You're like camping out. You're doing a profile. You're like studying. You got binoculars. <laughs> you're taking notes and you're like, oh, tile map rendering. Suspicious. <laughs> what? Need to investigate this. <laughs> uh, uh, I like it. Yes. Uh, so the tile map, map, tile map rendering has been one of the bigger bottlenecks probably for a while. And for some reason, it, it was pretty optimized um, because, you know, the it was only drawing what was going to be on the screen. You know, it wasn't trying to draw tiles that were off screen. It was only drawing what the player could see. Um, but there was still, you know, basically resolution divided by tile size number of tiles to draw every single frame. Right, so it's going to be like you know twenty by what fifteen or something, something, something. Anyways, there are hundreds of tiles to draw every single frame, right? Yeah. And uh, my thinking, I don't know how where I got this idea from. Maybe I heard it somewhere, or maybe I just remembered it. Um, but I was thinking that is the cost for doing a big draw of pixels in canvas the same as doing many smaller draws for the same amount of pixels or like what what is the difference right yeah um so for example like is it faster to draw one 1280 by 720 rectangle of pixel data versus a couple hundred you know 64 by 64 rectangles of data that all add up to the same number of total pixels I would think the single draw image call would be faster. It is faster, but by a surprising amount. Hmm. Um, and I wonder well, why. Is it just because there's uh, less function calls? Like, Because it's drawing the same number of pixels, but it just has less code required to do it, right? I wonder if it's like the bridge between JavaScript and like whatever the native stuff is mm. that's doing the actual drawing. You know? Yeah, because it could be. Maybe there's overhead just to calling draw image. And so the fact that you're calling draw image hundreds of times versus calling it once. Because yeah, uh, from my previous tests, I had always kind of assumed that the number of pixels being drawn is the bottleneck. Yeah. And that's true in a certain sense. Um, but in the case of a tile map where um, you're drawing hundreds of small rectangles, uh, I found that it's absolutely faster to just do one big draw. So what I did is I went in and I did uh, just a really quick... Well, first I did a really quick test. Um, I started doing things. So like the first thing I did was I replaced the tile map with just a big fill rect. And then I benchmarked that to see what the difference was. And then uh, I did a fill rect to a buffer and then I was using draw image from the buffer to the screen and see how that performed. And once that was good, then I started rendering the tile map to the buffer and then splitting the buffer to the screen every frame. Um, it was a basically an order of magnitude improvement. It went from wow. about 10% of the overall execution time to 1%, under 1% of the total execution time, basically. That's great. Um, so huge, huge improvement there. And, and what slice of the pie did the tile mapping take up of the, the whole picture of the execution of the application? 10%. Okay. So you decrease the 10% usage down to 1%. Yes. Wow, that's significant. It is pretty significant, yeah. So uh, that's that's really good. And I didn't even do anything super tricky. Um, there are uh, ways to do 
like tile buffering where you have like an off-screen buffer and as the map scrolls you just like render the next line over so you're only rendering like one row or one column at a time extra yeah and uh, i didn't even need to go that far i think that there's still optimization to be had by looking at that kind of a method but really all i did was i made a buffer that was one tile larger in width and height than could appear on the screen and um then i just keep track of which tile is in the upper left of the screen basically and when that tile changes which is like the player has moved one tile in space basically uh then i redraw the buffer really quick and that just it performs so well that's excellent even though it's actually redrawing the map to the buffer you know fairly often if you're moving across a room um you know it's probably like maybe every half second that's doing a redraw but that's you know every 500 milliseconds doing a redraw is much better than every 16 milliseconds yeah for sure and there's it's pretty often when you're not actually doing any scrolling when you're playing the game you know if you're hanging out in the middle or if you're hanging out near the sides and sort of kind of like you know clamp to the corner camera exactly yeah if the camera's not scrolling at all for whatever reason either because you're in the corner or it's a small room or you're just standing still or whatever it's just like lightning fast yeah that's great yeah so i was pretty happy with that that was a lot of fun and uh it's really isolated too which is nice and i'm thinking about backporting it into awl1 and uh getting you know nice performance boost with a very little amount of work on that hopefully that'd be great so uh the next thing i did the second biggest offender after the tile map was the uh, the fire particle rendering. And this is something that we've had in AWL1 for a really long time. Um, it looks pretty cool, and we just kind of used it all over the place. Uh, it wasn't as big an offender as the tile map, but once the tile map was out of the way, it was, you know, it kind of shot to the top as like, hey, this is the next thing to work on. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, that's a pretty interesting thing to try and optimize. And I spent some time thinking about it and trying to optimize it. And it's actually pretty difficult because uh, the way that it works is that it has these points. It's like basically a particle emitter, and it has these points that it creates in 2D space, and then it has these colors. And so for each point, for each color, it draws arcs using Canvas API draw calls. Yeah. And so uh, it looks really good because, you know, we've got like gray orange yellow red or whatever the the spectrum happens to be and you get these really cool looking fire particles and they kind of decay over time and they get grayer as they they go up so they kind of look like smoke Uh, but it's super costly and uh, i had taken steps to optimize that back in awl1 because without any optimization that code was like it was way worse than the tile map with zero optimization um and so we did in awl1 was i cached the rendering of it so that if you had four fires on screen it was only really drawing one fire to a buffer and then it was just copying that buffer to all the places where the fire was used on the screen which was uh that was a big improvement yeah that was like a must basically a must yeah that or we couldn't have the fire at all um and so that kind of made it usable and so that was the first thing i did and the second thing i did was that i decreased uh the redraw frame rate uh, of the fire itself so it wasn't exactly 60 frames a second it was probably more like 40 or something it still looked pretty good but um you know we're definitely going down this route where the only way to optimize that kind of a thing 
was by reducing the fidelity. Either having it update the particles less often, which basically reduces their frame rate. You know, having fewer fires on the screen at all, which you know, is not great either. Because then we can't even use the thing that we want. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, we talked about it, and it's kind of one of those things where it's like, it looks really good, but having a sprited fire effect would be just again orders of magnitude faster and look you know completely fine it has the potential to look even better being handcrafted it does yeah that's true um so you went ahead and did that and i think it looks great and so now the fire in the game looks more like a sprite but it still looks pretty good and uh and it's like you know amazingly more amazingly faster uh which is really good so i don't know i'm trying to keep in that mindset about like do we need this thing like let's yeah. look at this expensive thing the first step of optimization is why does this even need to be the way it is in the first place because if you could just remove the need for that that's the best optimization right <laughs> and then the next best optimization is like okay now that we've identified that we have to have it this way you know what can we do to uh to make it faster so anyways, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty interesting stuff. I think the big takeaway for me for, for those two things uh, is one, Canvas API, you know, fewer draw image calls is better uh, even when you're talking about the same number of actual pixels. So that's important. And the second thing is that, uh, you know, be ruthless about uh, your need for something, you know, how... Why does it have to be that way? If you can eliminate the bottleneck altogether, it's the best case scenario. Uh, so uh, that is basically the end of my optimization quest. Well this done. Week. That's a serious problem. You know, that's one of the two of the main reasons that we didn't want to stick with HTML5. I guess there's three. <laughs> one of the main reasons was performance for sure, right? It's like a common reason that people give us a bad review is because it doesn't perform very well and it just won't play at 30 frames per second, even on a lot of older computers. Uh, two is just like the crashiness, right? And then three would be like the platform support like we want to get on consoles and stuff like that. But uh, probably out of those, the most important might very well be the, you know, the performance it needs to be optimal and stable. And uh, that's some, you know, step towards that. So that's great. I'm really looking forward to uh, working with Electron more. My initial test with Electron uh, and these optimizations are really good. It's just it's running 60 frames a second all the time. Yeah. So, awesome. Good stuff. Do you have an art tip this week? I do. Um, Hooray. <laughs> art tip time. So, last week it was Break It Down. And uh, I basically was kind of reminded of this tactic by being overwhelmed with a bunch of videos I wanted to watch, which like, I'm starting to realize that there needs to almost be this magic formula for like, let's say you watch a 10 minute video, you should practice what you learned for 20 minutes. That should almost be like double the amount of time, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I was going through all these, uh, these drawing, figure drawing videos, and it's just overwhelming when there's like, hey, there's 30 videos and they're each 20 minutes. It's like, oh, <laughs> never going to get this done. So that was Break It Down, and this one is Double Down. And uh, this is something that I've kind of realized myself, and then I also got this uh, email. I signed up for this newsletter uh, from an artist named Chris Oatley. I'll put a link in the show notes. 
which uh so this tip this tip is along the lines of like basically keep yourself interested you know find something to focus on there was a previous tip where i was talking about like um basically removing some things from your plate you know there's just too much to learn so it's overwhelming and this is kind of along those same lines but this is more like you know you could be doing portraits you could be studying digital you could be doing traditional you could decide that charcoal is your thing you could do claymation you could paint flowers on walls it's it's like infinite things you could be doing so you have to at some point make a decision about what it is that you want to do you know like what's important to you and so I made this like kind of manifesto for myself because I was like, a lot of times I don't know what to draw. You know, I, I've got my references and I go through those and, you know, that's that's good and that's fine. But what I want is like some repeating themes. You know, I almost want maybe like a couple years from now, if you saw a drawing or a painting from me, you might even be able to recognize it just because of like, I made a decision at some point to double down on these things and get good at these things. You know, like you see a certain type of mountain in the background. You're like, it looks like one of Matt's mountains. You know, or like you see bees and you're like, wow, those look like Matt's bees. And Matt puts bees in all of his stuff because he likes bees. <laughs> bees, bees, bees. You know, like this is basically, it's like time at some point to to settle down. And like, I think that I've come to this realization because uh, for quite a while now, I've been kind of like just trying to eagerly learn just about everything that I can. But I'm coming to a plateau where like, I have at least heard of most stuff. Like I'm still very novice in, in most categories. But it's like I'm starting to see some repeating patterns, you know, like people are suggesting the same stuff, they're pointing to the same areas to study, they're recommending the same books. And so coming to the other end and at least getting like a full picture of all the things that you can learn, I'm starting to realize I need to just pick some stuff and double down on it. Mm. And so that's kind of what I've been doing. That's good. It is good. And this applies to other things in life too, you know, like especially with game development. Like we realized this uh, only in the last year or two, right, is there is a finite number of games you can make in your lifetime. You know, we want to make first-person dungeon crawlers. We want to make board games and online multiplayer role-play cheesy. Like, too much stuff. <laughs> like, there's all these freaking ideas we have. And the reality is that, like, a decent game takes, like, a year, two years, five years to make. You're not going to make 100 games. So, like, we, we do at some point have to pick what, like, pick your poison, right? What is it that we're going to double down on? <laughs> Which games are you going to make before you die? <laughs> That's a really morbid way of looking at it. <laughs> yes, but that's that's what it is, right? Right. You get to pick, you know, a small number of all these great ideas that you might have. Yeah, it's and it's almost like this kind of sad reality because you think like, you know, there's time for everything and I'll get to everything. And like there's nope. time... <laughs> nope, night life is not that long. There's time to try everything, right? But there's definitely not enough time to master everything. There just is not. There's not guess- even enough time to get good at everything. If you were doing something like one game a month, though, you could probably make at least a prototype of every, almost every type of game you want to make. You could. Yeah. But the thing is, like, you're going to make a first stab at those things, you know? Right. And I think that that might be a good thing to do because, you know, it's almost like going to school. A lot of people go to school and end up changing their major because they don't know. They haven't really had enough collision with life. They'd be like, I think I want to do chemistry. And the more they get into it, they're like, nope, you know what? Movies are my thing. I got to get into movies. Or... I just love science, like, uh, or, you know, medicine, whatever it is, right? And uh, that's the same kind of thing with games. You know, you like, let's say you, you spend a year, you make 12 games, and you're like, I hated that simulation. I loved that role-playing game. I loved the side-scrolling platformer. I, I hated that match three game. Like, you, you'd figure out eventually which ones you want to focus on. And, like, 
you could look at it this way too. If the next year you were like, you know what, I decided is tactical RPGs. That's my thing. And you spent, you know, one game a month making 12 tactical RPGs. You know, you doubled down on that genre. By the end, they'd probably be really good. Right. You know, that's the thing is it's all about doubling down. Like pick one thing and make that excellent. I think that's something we are trying to do yeah, more of. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, the sequel, right? The sequel and also just, you know, trying to keep our mindset. You know, like we don't want to pigeonhole ourselves into a specific kind of game necessarily. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like a terrible idea to spend at least some amount of time trying to perfect a style or a genre or something. Yeah. I have an analogy in my mind. You ready for it, Jeff? You ready for this? I know you love my analogies. I got to prepare. You got to prepare yourself. So I remember uh, when I first discovered eBay, this was probably like late 90s or who knows these days, but like... I don't know if you had a similar experience or not, but I, I was a really big like retro game collector, uh, and so you just you find eBay and you're like, "Whoa, they have a they have an original Sega Genesis. I sold mine years ago. They have a Game Boy in the box. Oh man, Blaster Master, a collection <laughs> of twelve Master System games. And you find all this stuff, and you're like, you don't know eBay yet, right? You think you do, and you see that like, oh, that Master System collection's five bucks. I'll bid six bucks. I'm sure I'll get it. And like you pull your money together and you're like, okay, I'm going to spend about a hundred bucks and I'm going to get a hundred games. And then like e- the reality of eBay sets in and it's like, you've been outbidded, you've been outbidded, you've been outbidded. They've all been outbidded. You're not going to get any of them. The, the, the reality is that based on your little pool of money here, you can probably pick one. You know, you might be able to spend the money and just be like, okay, I'm going to outbid this person. I don't care. I'm, you even get to the point where you're like, ah, it's more than I wanted to spend, but you might do it anyway. You're but, like invested. Yeah, you're invested, but the point is that you're not getting everything. It looks like you can, but it's a mirage, right? Like, that's how the right. auctions work. And a lot of that is the same that's true with life. You know, you look at game development. Like, I'm learning so rapidly. Surely I'll be able to make every type of game that I want. No, you can't. <laughs> wow, you're, you're a downer. <laughs> you're like a demotivational talker, speaker. <laughs> I mean, when you look at the games that we've made, especially considering that, uh, you know, like I started making games when I was 12, this is coming up from the other side. You know, like I've made lots and lots of different types of games. There have been side-scrolling platformers, there have been turn-based RPGs, there have been first-person dungeon crawlers, there have even been some like uh, Doom-type games. You know, like I've built a lot of different types of those. And with the drawing, you know, I've tried I've tried charcoal. I, I haven't tried tra- traditional painting, but I've tried lots of different digital approaches to painting. You know, drawing of various kinds, portraits, still lifes, plain airs. Like there's all these things you can you can look at and i think it's definitely worthwhile to dip your toes in you know spend some time with it maybe even make something maybe even ship something in these various categories but i think at some point like if you want to make something really really excellent you know i think that you do have to double down focus and say no to other things even though you think they're cool you know what i mean like i think that um uh watercolor looks awesome and i really want to try it someday i know that it's a deep cliff you know what i mean so like (laughs) maybe when i retire or something like that but in the short term like no i'm I'm saying no to that i'm going to focus on other stuff and also like watercolor like doesn't fit in your wheelhouse as well as maybe some other departures yeah exactly so it's hard you know like it's okay to step away but maybe one step not five steps right (laughs) yeah or something yeah, so that's that's my next thing is I'm I'm trying to decide what it is that I want to focus on and then I'm going to create like ways to study and just practice those things and and with the hope that like like my end goal is basically just to make better games, you know what I mean? And that's right. something I need to keep in mind uh, at all times when I'm studying art is that like I 
I'm not necessarily in a place right now where I want to just make art for art's sake. I, I don't. I want to make art to make better games. And so having that as a focus really enables me to, you know, double down on certain parts, not others. Interesting. Yeah. So that's my long-winded uh, art tip. And uh, do you have a, what are you doing now? Design patterns? Yeah. Ooh, let's hear it. I really like this resource that came up several weeks ago, the gameprogrammingpatterns.com. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that I'm interested in that, that I'm going to talk about, even though I don't have a lot of experience with it. <laughs> Put on that tiger hat. As I do. <laughs> is the the concept of data locality. Ooh, sounds fancy. It does sound fancy. This is actually something that um, is a little bit more geared towards like the underlying arrangement of memory mm. and stuff like that. But I think it, it does have implications for uh, for like a higher level type thing. Uh, I mean, it's not so high level like, you know, game maker but as someone who kind of works on game engines i I find that it to be pretty interesting um the basic idea is this is that the way that you access memory on the on the you know on ram is important and there's various caches that the cpu has because you know the cpu executes instructions and the cpu has a cache and if the cpu needs data and the data it needs is in the CPU's cache, it's like blazingly fast to get it. If it has to go out to memory, RAM, it's a lot slower. Yeah. Relatively speaking. And then, you know, I don't know if you've seen these kinds of charts, but like there are these huge steps where it's like, this is how fast it is to read uh, read memory from like the CPU cache. This is how fast it is to read it from memory. Also really fast, but pales in comparison to the CPU cache. And then you get into things like trying to read it from the disk, which is like ridiculously slow. Right. Trying to read it over the network, ridiculously slow. Um, but the idea is with the data locality is that you arrange your data in memory such that it can be read sequentially and not have to do all this like cache, cache thrashing <laughs> where it's like, does this thing exist in the cache? No, let me go find out where it is. I have to go check. I have to go find RAM, whatever. Yeah. So the basic idea is this, is that with an entity component system, what you can do is you can basically put all of the similar types of data together into like homogeneous arrays. Uh, for example, like all the components that you have for uh, for your game engine. So I know it's kind of confusing, but I'm gonna try and talk through it and make it <laughs> make sense. <laughs> Good let's luck. take yeah, let's take our you know let's take like the simple uh, implementation of entity component, right? You have an entity object, and that entity object has components attached to it. And each of those components is probably, in turn, an object of their own, right? So, for example, you have an entity, and that entity has a physics component. And the physics component stores data like what's the velocity on the various uh, axes, x and y and maybe z. Um, What's the gravity? What's the friction you know all these things that take into account how the object responds to the simulated physics um then you have another component that's like the artificial intelligence and the artificial intelligence has its own state like um where is this thing going what is it looking for uh how long has it been since it fired a projectile last you know all those kinds of things and then it also has potentially like a rendering component which says uh, you know, you render this sprite and it's this high and this wide and it's got this kind of a scale to it and it's got this kind of an overlay or whatever. And so you have like all these these buckets of information that are attached to this entity. 
And so in a normal system, you would iterate over every entity that are, is currently in the scene. And for each entity, you would iterate over each component and like send it an update, perhaps. So the way that you would update your game engine is that you'd cascade this update from the game engine into all the entities in order. And then each entity, as it's updated, would then update all of its own components in order. So the end net effect is that you get this uh, system where it's like entity one, uh, you know, physics AI render. Entity two, physics AI render. Entity three, physics AI render. <clears throat> and um, according to this article, um, you know, that's not going to guarantee that the data is in any kind of contiguous location, right? Like the data for those entities could be all over the place mm. uh, because those entities are, you know, created who knows when, right? And so it could jump around the memory where the data for those entities are stored. And this is something that, like, you know, we may not have as much con control over in, say, JavaScript. But I'll be willing to bet, and I, I want to experiment with this at some point in the future, that uh, putting those things in homogenous arrays would actually be faster. Interesting. And so anyways, what this guy is arguing for is the idea that instead of having a setup like that, you would have a setup where you actually just have these buckets of components. So you'd still have entities, but the entities would really just have pointers to their components, and the components would actually live in a homogenous array of like components. So for example, uh, you would have like a bucket of physics components, and that bucket of physics components... Um, you could just iterate over all of them at once. So you could say for each physics component in this array of physics component, update, 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 update. And uh, I think that actually has a lot of interesting value, not only from the potential speed benefit uh, of accessing that memory sequentially, uh, which again, I don't know if that would be true for JavaScript. I suspect that it might be, but you know, I, I have no way of knowing without testing it. Um, but I think it also has... Um, benefits just in the architecture of the game engine, right? Um, it's pretty useful to be able to say all the physics updates at once, right? Because you, then you don't get into these weird situations where like, you know, entity one uh, updates its physics, then it updates its AI, right? And so like, let's just walk through that scenario and what would happen. Let's say you've got two entities and um, they want to know, you know, if they're colliding or something. So entity one moves, and then checks collision. Entity two moves and checks collision. And you know, there's a possibility that they could have been colliding at some point, um, but they didn't because of the order of those operations. Hmm. Um, right? Like if you move entity A and it's not colliding with entity B, and then you run its AI script and it says, Am I colliding with anything? No. And then entity B moves, and then it is colliding with entity A. You know that ordering is is off, and whether or not that makes a difference in your actual program is you know is debatable. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting though. But you know the basic idea is that I think it sounds pretty attractive to be able to update all the light components at the same time. So it's like first you go through and you do all of your physics calculations, and you can send them like a fixed time step if you want. Right, and then you know that everything in the world as of right now, has had their physics updated. And then you can go through and update all of the AI. And then at that point, when the AI is updating, you know that like the physics tick has already ran, everything is where it should be, 
uh, or where it's going to be for this frame. So I find that idea pretty interesting, not only from the potential uh, speed improvement, uh, but also for the potential, like, just uh, cleaner design. Yeah. Nice. I also think it, it would be performant just because uh, you'd be iterating, like, so... You'd be iterating over, like, three different arrays or however many systems you have uh, instead of iterating over the number of entities times the number of components. I mean, you still have to iterate over the same number of components total, but I think you'd be doing it in fewer loops. Right. Right, it'd be like one big loop to do all of the AI, one big loop to do all of the um, physics, one big loop to do all of the rendering, as opposed to like one giant loop to do all the entities, and then within each entity, one loop to do each of the components. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where JavaScript, you know, you can get optimization trouble sometimes is when you have nested loops that loop. For sure. (laughs) And so being able to kind of like pull those out into like a um, more flat structure, I think makes a lot of sense. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's always a red flag when you've got like a while loop and inside of it you've got embedded four loops. You're like, no. (laughs) It's going to get all tangly. Yes. So anyways, uh, I would love, if anybody has any experience with data locality in JavaScript, like whether or not putting components into an array and then iterating over the like components within that array if that's more performant uh you know definitely let us know on twitter or the forum um i'm particularly interested in in whether or not that's true um, well but again, i bet you're going to get some comments on the forum because like. our community on the forum is smart and they like cool things like programming they're very knowledgeable they're very attractive as well you should totally join our forum (laughs) seriously i think we got an awesome community they are very good looking (laughs) why aren't you joining right now (laughs) hit pause and join the forum anyways uh so that's good stuff i hope that was interesting i know that it's kind of a lot to digest the data locality thing but matt will put a link to it in the show notes um and you can actually read read it firsthand instead of listening to my you know perhaps (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> misguided attempt to uh to regurgitate it that's the tough thing about talking about video games is that uh video games are inherently visual and we have this audio podcast so some stuff is just uh difficult to talk about you know you could like a picture says a thousand words kind of thing and when you've got 60 frames per second that's a lot of information to discuss right <laughs> yeah i think this is like uh, this particular topic would really benefit from like a whiteboard type situation but such as life maybe uh if i get a chance to dive into that stuff um i will report back with my findings it's uh maybe something i'll tackle in one of my experimental html5 game engines Ooh, you totally should Anyways, uh, that's about it for today. So, you know, as Matt said, join us on the forum. Let us know what you think about whatever. Give us all <laughs> all the opinions ever. We're going to play you out with Bone Arc Madness. This is the second track on Vlad 2. Check it out. Ship it.
I have a strong clap. <laughs> the clap um, is strong with me. <laughs> I'm just going to not comment on that. Yeah, that's probably wise. <laughs> I'm going to let that die right there. <laughs> <laughs>